Hello, thank you for joining us. We are proud to welcome you to our special series, Survival by Degrees, brought to you by Brill, where we talk about the climate crisis and what tackling it really entails. I'm your host, Lee Jung Greco. Today we're speaking with Dr. Nicholas Graham. He's a postdoctoral researcher and instructor of sociology at the University of Victoria in Victoria, Canada. His book is Forces of Production, Climate Change, and Canadian Fossil Capitalism. Dr. Graham, thanks so much for sitting down with us. Thanks a lot for having me and uh, thanks for your interest in my work. So we've already had a dire warning from a UN panel on climate change in 2018. The panel then declared that we have less than 12 years to reduce greenhouse gas emission by half and get on target to reach zero emissions by 2050. Where are we on that goal and what happens if we don't meet it? Yeah, well, um, since 2018, uh, since that warning, we've made little progress. Global emissions grew uh, in 2019. There was a, a reduction in 2020 due largely to the impacts of COVID, but, but not by much. In the latest projections that I've seen, global carbon emissions are set uh, for a large increase for 2021. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, the IPCC, has released a new major report that some of the listener, uh, listeners might have might have seen. It's called uh, Climate Change 2021. It's part of the IPCC's sixth major climate assessment. So this is the physical side of the assessment. Uh, the IPCC is broken up into three working groups, and this is the physical science side. It includes, uh, the report includes a number of emission scenarios uh, in almost all of them, um, including the most radical emissions reduction scenarios the group studied. Global warming is expected to hit 1.5 degrees Celsius in the early 2030s, which is uh, considered, widely considered an extremely dangerous threshold of warming. The report includes uh, projections that are based more or less on a business as usual, based on what is currently being done under existing climate plans, if more ambitious measures are not taken. Uh, the, the business as usual scenario is leading us towards a warming in the range of three degrees Celsius by the end of the century. The effects of that would be truly catastrophic. In the case of uh, three degrees Celsius warming, a sea level rise of one to up to two meters uh, is predicted by the end of the century. Extreme heat, forest fires, severe drought, flash floods, uh, and more are all predicted. So I guess just to give our listeners a better look at this, at how it might affect their everyday lives. For example, here in the U.S., we have wildfires on the West Coast. We have had these flash floods over in New York. Um, if climate change doesn't get under control, how regular do those sorts of phenomenons become? Yeah, they become much more common and they grow in increasing intensity uh, and severity. So definitely, as you're saying, 
um, today, weather extremes are one of the ways in which a lot of people are directly experiencing uh, climate change, especially in global North countries in North America and Canada. As you're saying, we're seeing these these huge storms right now, uh, flash flooding in New York and Toronto that I was just looking at. Um, earlier this summer in British Columbia, where I live, in parts of Northwest US, uh, we experienced what was called a heat dome. It reached uh, 50 degrees Celsius in one part of BC, the highest temperature ever recorded in Canada. The heat dome caused uh, thousands of heat-related deaths. Uh, it, heat waves more generally um, have led, as you're saying, to increased forest fires nearly every summer, uh, burning longer, burning more intensely. The forest fires that took place uh, in Australia a couple of years ago gathered a lot of uh, global attention. I think a lot of uh, people people saw that and of course was experienced in Australia. So I do think this is a way that a lot of people have directly experienced the effects of climate change. It's well understood, a kind of general truth that those uh, in the global south and poor people in those regions face the most severe current and future predicted effects. Uh, this is partially related to things like rising sea level uh, sea levels from melting glaciers, which will directly affect low-lying island populations, densely settled areas like Bangladesh. Uh, so climate change exacerbates existing inequalities, uh, but this last year and increasingly the impacts of climate change are felt in the corner, in every corner of the world. So then taken back to your work, how would a Marxist approach help us understand the climate crisis right now? Yeah, so uh, it's a it's a big question. You know, Marxism can be described as a kind of science of capitalism, if you like. It sets out to analyze capitalism's deep structures, its tendencies and contradictions, its positive potentials, and also its perils. So, capitalism is a particular kind of society. Uh, it's built on private and today corporate control over land and technology, and it's premised on the exploitation of wage labor. It also involves uh, and profoundly shapes the relationship between human beings and the rest of nature's non-human nature, uh, including the climate system. Understanding this relation between humanity and the rest of nature uh, is the subject of much uh, what is referred to as eco-Marxism or ecological Marxism. So really broadly, we can see how our relation to nature within capitalism is driven by a growth imperative or the quest to accumulate capital to grow a profit um, at a compound rate. This imperative has led uh, at a broad level to rising energy and matter consumption, or what is sometimes called throughput. This treadmill of accumulation, treadmill of production, um, produces various waste as there's a huge amount of energy and matter that's consumed, and that includes carbon dioxide emissions. So here, I think it's not too difficult to see a major tension, uh, if not an outright contradiction between this growth imperative and the stability of the climate system. What I've tried to do in my work is to contribute to this body of research in part by rethinking the concept of forces of production. This is an important concept uh, within the Marxist tradition. It's also found within liberal political economy. 
I suggest rethinking this concept of forces of production ecological terms or from an ecological standpoint. This in turn leads us to think about how various aspects of forces of production, so things like technology, infrastructures, and the and forms of knowledge through which our relationship to, to nature is mediated, through which it takes place, have been built around a systemic drive for profit, um, often over or in place of their contribution to human well-being or ecosystem health. This rethinking then points to how forces of production will need to be extensively transformed and recomposed in response to the climate crisis. In some cases, this may involve a retreat, so a scaling back of some destructive productive practices and forces. In other cases, um, what is needed is a growth and expanded use of what I've called green productive forces. So things like renewable energy, uh, green infrastructure, so things like public transportation that is sustainable. I mean, e ecological thinking and knowledge itself, for example. But uh, our current economic and political system poses serious obstacles to that process of transformation. Uh, in other words, in a kind of Marxist terminology, their development is constrained um, by relations of production. So I guess then to take us back a little further, because with Marxist ideology, you're talking about how we have to transform our existing capitalist system in order to uh, kind of save ourselves from this climate crisis. So mm -hmm. take us back before that and explain what is fossil capitalism and how has it become embedded in our everyday lives over the last two centuries now? Sure. Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, you know, fossil capitalism is a kind of conceptual lens, I would say. It points to the key role of fossil fuels um, in mediating that societal relationship to nature and fueling economic growth since the late 18th and early 19th century. So beginning at that point, the huge uh, growth in the output of goods, the development of long-distance transportation associated with um, early industrial capitalism is premised on the production uh, and consumption of fossil fuels. But this relationship uh, between economic growth and fossil fuels has only deepened since the 19th century or since the Industrial Revolution. There was a massive growth uh, in the production and consumption of fossil fuels after the Second World War. So private mobility, suburbanization, agriculture and food, uh, other forms of everyday consumables all became very bound up with uh, fossil fuels. You know, fast forwarding contemporary neoliberal globalization uh, beginning in the 1980s has also entailed a huge expansion of fossil power. So you can think about how long distance um, commodity transport, so things being produced on the other side of the world and being transported across the world, um, those networks are, are powered by fossil fuel energy, for example. So this has led to a huge increase in consumption. So the term fossil capitalism points to how fossil fuels have then become embedded in essentially the entire economic structure. This is the immediate source of the climate crisis. That This literature on fossil capitalism also points to major path dependencies, um, economic kind of lock-in posed by this embedding, and the huge 
challenge of decarbonization. Decarbonization and energy transition is understood as a, as a massive challenge that will require major, again, political, cultural, economic transformation based uh, essentially on, on forms of collective action. Um, so the transition you know, in this, in this approach is understood to involve struggle, uh, conflict, and uh, kind of confrontation with power. You've already <laughs> talked about how this is embedded within Canada's economic system. What's the relationship then between fossil capitalism and politics in Canada? Yeah, as you're, as you're suggesting, uh, in the last decade or so, there's been a major expansion of the fossil fuel industry uh, in Canada, which is now an economically dominant sector. Fossil fuel development has largely involved the growth of what are called unconventional fossil fuels, so shale gas. This is gas that is trapped in shale rock formations that are deeply buried. It needs to be fracked, so it's, it's uh, fracked gas. And tar sands, which probably a lot of the listeners have heard of before, which is really thick, uh, dense form of bitumen that's based in, in Alberta that involves extensive mining and also processing in order to make it usable oil. As an economically prominent industry, uh, the fossil fuel sector and other sectors like the finance industry, which is heavily invested in fossil fuels, exercise a great deal of power and influence over politics and over popular and public opinion, ultimately with the aim of protecting profits, promoting business as usual. Uh, so the fossil fuel sector in Canada, as it is in other places, as it is in the U.S., uh, for example, is very active politically through channels like political lobbying, by funding and helping govern think tanks and other civil society organizations to help secure consent and support behind uh, the industry. As in many other places, there is an ongoing effort uh, by the industry to not only protect existing production, production networks, but also to expand them through new large-scale pipeline projects. All this said, there is a significant amount of public and popular opposition to the industry. Uh, much of the, the resistance and mobilization in Canada has been led by First Nations communities, uh, whose land uh, and self-determination has often been threatened by large-scale fossil fuel projects. Overall, I, I would say there's been a somewhat defensive orientation to mobilizations, an emphasis on blocking of individual fossil fuel projects. This opposition is important. It's often been effective. It prefigures and is accompanied by more transformative climate justice movements. But arguably, that side has been uh, somewhat weak. An organization behind political projects like, say, radical versions of the Green New Deal perhaps hasn't been as strong as in the U.S. or in many parts of Europe. Transformative movements uh, and climate visions were gaining momentum prior to COVID, uh, and hopefully that momentum uh, will be regained. I'll just add, at the, at, the, at the governmental state politics level, a kind of clean growth or climate capitalist frame that emphasizes market-based measures, things like carbon taxes, carbon offsets, and really incremental change, which in the Canadian context maintains or even allows for an expansion of the fossil fuel sector in the short term 
predominates, um, at least federally in politics. So this kind of market-centric clean growth is the official climate policy of the federal Liberal government. We have an upcoming federal election here in Canada, uh, and none of the existing parties, I would say, are offering anything significantly more ambitious. There's a major disjuncture between what climate, climate science is telling us, as we were discussing at the outset, and formal political action. Movement coalitions, the organization of civil society has a key role to play in really shifting this dynamic, shifting the dynamic of governmental and state politics. But transforming political parties and state priorities has been hugely challenging here in Canada, um, as it has been in other places. I think actually, as you were talking about how fossil fuels have really thrived in Canada under this neoliberal system. I was thinking of, you know, your current prime minister, Justin Trudeau. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about his stance uh, when it comes to fossil fuels. He seems like an interesting figure where he is socially rather liberal, but when it comes to fossil fuels in Canada, uh, he seems rather conservative or or maybe as you've described, given that the liberal government um, hasn't planned anything that ambitious, uh, I guess he's just sort of towing the line, so to speak. Yeah. And I think, you know, this this kind of clean growth approach, is, which is what it's being called in Canada and um, by the liberals, it kind of, you know, walks a little bit of a, of a middle ground by talking about and referring to energy transition as a major um, necessity in the near future. Um, it talks the talk of climate politics, but then as you're saying, as a kind of brokerage politics of, of doing that on the one side and then uh, green lighting fossil fuel expansion projects on the, on the other hand. And as, you know, many, many people have pointed out, the two you know, just, just, just can't go together. You can't meet climate commitments and expand um, fossil fuel extraction um, and transport at the same time. And so, you know, there's quite a bit with the federal government of, of kind of talking the talk of climate action, but not really walking the walk in terms of actual action in terms of shifting um, away from a fossil fuel dependent uh, economy. So- Just to wrap up, you state that there's no blank slate upon which an alternative energy system can be constructed. So what's the way out of today's carbon society for Canada and for the rest of the world? Yeah, um, the the point about a blank slate surrounds um, sort of material conditions of opportunity and constraint. So, you know, we need to think about the transformation of existing energy systems into an alternative system. Uh, People rely on energy networks, other aspects of productive forces to meet everyday needs. Uh, So we need to think about transition beginning from and within the material conditions we find ourselves in. This is a reality, uh, but it doesn't mean, I would suggest that an alternative energy system based on renewable energy needs to replace the existing one sort of grid for grid, pipe for pipe, or jewel for jewel 
we need to think, in my view, we can think about and imagine a significant overall reduction of the energy that is produced and consumed, uh, at least in the global north. Um, and we can think about the construction of a more decentralized energy system, uh, where a significant amount of the development takes place at the community scale, for example. So renewables, uh, renewable energy is key, but there's a lot to think about in terms of how they will be brought about and by whom. So as I argue uh, in the book, the development of renewable energy, which is a key component uh, of what I call green forces of production, um, is today constrained and blocked by uh, relations of production, to use this terminology, but namely profit motive, corporate power. So to develop renewables at speed, at scale, uh, there is a need for new forms of public ownership, I suggest, uh, public finance, and direct forms of economic and democratic planning. These are key components of a pathway towards kind of green socialism in the 21st century. Uh, this is, a, you know, thinking about an alternative that is built on uh, a democratic transformation and reorientation of various productive forces towards uh, meeting human need and ecosystem health and flourishing. Dr. Graham, really fascinating conversation here. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me and uh, nice speaking with you. Dr. Nicholas Graham, his book is Forces of Production, Climate Change, in Canadian fossil capitalism. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.